Why is Canada involved in the war in Afghanistan? Are Canadians there to support the liberation of women and human rights? Are they present out of a sense of duty to their U.S. allies? Or are they motivated by a drive for profits and resource wealth? Have foreign interventions going back to the 1970s helped or hurt the people of Afghanistan? And what are the prospects of a vir burgeoning anti-war movement in Canada reversing Canada's more aggressive military posture of the last 10 years? We will explore these questions with two contributors to a recent anthology on Canada's role in Afghanistan, as well as with a retired University of Winnipeg professor who was in Afghanistan at the time secular reforms were brought to the country. On today's program, Canada in Afghanistan, we stand on guard for empire. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 27, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Remember Building 7 campaign is pleased to announce that we have contributed the remaining $50,000 of the funds raised during the 10th anniversary toward a larger joint effort with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth called Rethink 9-11. Rethink 9-11 will include outdoor and transit advertising in 11 major cities around the world this September 2013, coupled with grassroots actions in dozens of cities worldwide. In furtherance of Remember Building 7's mission, Rethink 9-11 will be spearheaded by a massive 50-foot billboard in the heart of Times Square, asking passers-by if they know a third tower fell on 9-11. Following the fundraising drive, which ends on August 1st, Rethink 9-11 will start gearing up for a month of grassroots actions to take place in dozens of cities across the world during the month of September. We thank you for your generous support, and we cannot wait to move forward in our collective goal of creating the ultimate breakthrough. More information is at the website rethink911.org. That's from... Remember WTC Building 7, did you know that a third tower fell on 9-11? Posted by Global Research News, June 25, 2013. The debate over whether geoengineering programs are going to on is now a moot point. To be clear, what we are seeing is not cloud seeding to increase rainfall. These particulates are designed to block the sun and move the jet stream. Dane reports, among other things, on geoengineering-related climate disruptions, extreme drought and deluge, ozone depletion, methane release, 
drastic reduction in Arctic sea ice, global oxygen content reductions, oceans on the brink of collapse, massive fish die-offs, 200 species becoming extinct every single day, a drastic rise in autism, Alzheimer's, and dementia, crisis-level forest reductions, the sterilization of soils making it impossible for plants to grow without Monsanto's aluminum-resistant seeds. Dane Wigington presents hard data which reveals what these catastrophic programs have done to our planet to date and what they will do if they are allowed to continue. That's from Geoengineering, Global Climate Disruptions, Chemtrails. Our atmosphere is a massive physics lab. From Dane Wigington, posted June 25th, originally appearing at geoengineeringwatch.org. NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, who arrived in Moscow on Sunday from Hong Kong, appears to be still in Russia after reports that he failed to board a flight to Cuba on which he was booked on Monday. Speaking from New Delhi, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry warned on Moscow that there would be, quote, without doubt, consequences, unquote, if Russian authorities did not give up Snowden. Kerry's appeal for Russia to live by the standards of the law was utterly hypocritical given that Snowden has revealed through his actions massive and illegal spying operations on the population of the United States and the world. Responding to American demands, Alexei Pushkov, head of a Russian Parliamentary Foreign Relations Committee, told the media, quote, Ties are in a rather complicated phase, and when ties are in such a phase, when one country undertakes hostile action against another, why should the United States expect restraint and understanding from Russia? While Pushkov did not spell it out, Snowden's revelations of the extent of American international electronic spying, including on rivals such as Russia and China, has undoubtedly further heightened tensions over the U.S.-led regime change operation against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, which directly impacts on Russian interests. That's from U.S. Issues Threats to China, Russia over Snowden by Peter Simmons, posted June 25th, originally appearing at the World Socialists' website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Michael Skinner is an independent researcher and a graduate fellow at the York Center for International and Security Studies, as well as an accomplished musician and composer. Uh, Mr. Skinner led research projects in Central America and Central Asia, including several trips to Afghanistan. He is a contributing author to the publication Empire's Ally, Canada and the War in Afghanistan. His articles have also been published in the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives CCPA Monitor, Briarpatch, The Dominion, The Bullet, and Global Research, among other outlets. He's authored a number of reports for governments and NGOs, and he has been a guest lecturer at universities in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Great Britain, and Canada. He's just completed a tour uh, in which he has been um, messaging Canadians about uh, his particular contribution to the anthology, and uh, we're going to discuss that contribution 
It is uh, The Empire of Capital and the Latest Inning of the Great Game. Mr. Skinner, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. I just wanted to uh, get uh, a little bit of a read. I mean, I just described it briefly, but uh, maybe the, the extent of your, of your research uh, in Afghanistan specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I first went to Afghanistan doing some research for a, a film documentary project that unfortunately never came to be. But uh, I, the first time I went to Afghanistan in 2007, I traveled around the country asking Afghans, what they thought about the international intervention. And what I found was uh, Afghans were very skeptical that we were there to liberate Afghan women or bring democracy to Afghans, particularly considering they had had a constitutional uh, monarchy form of democracy for, for quite a few years, and which was interrupted by international interventions. Uh, there was skeptical of, of those purported reasons, and instead had a very long list of geopolitical and geoeconomic rationales for why they thought we were invading and occupying their country. They, of course, there's a long history of, of the country uh, you, where you have foreign powers uh, intervening, uh, and uh, no doubt ordinary Afghans are, are very well aware of that history and are probably seeing the, the, the most recent intervention in that same light, no? I, I found Afghans were actually very perceptive of, uh, of what's going on. You know, in, in the West, we tend to look at people elsewhere as, as being ignorant, and yet uh, I found they were quite astute about their own place in global history. And in the case of Afghanistan, uh, Western powers have been fighting over Afghanistan for, for several centuries now is what I'm calling what has always been called the great game and and that's the theme around my chapter is that this great game is is still ongoing mm. yeah well it's like you say it's right in the the title itself um, well why do you refer to it as a game and like using that precise metaphor well what's what was called the great game in the 19th century was between Tsarist Russia and the British Empire. And Afghanistan became a barrier state between those two empires. It was used as, as a barrier, uh, basically protecting both empires from, from one another. Uh, that use of Afghanistan persisted through, throughout the Cold War. And uh, then it was the barrier between Soviet Russia and, and the United States, um, with, with the collapse of, of the USSR, uh, American strategists realized that Afghanistan could play an entirely new role. And Zbigniew uh, uh, Brzezinski called this area uh, the new European bridgehead. So this would be the bridgehead to open up free trade and, and expand capitalist social relations throughout Eurasia. Mm. You, you mentioned Zbigniew Brzezinski. That was uh, Car Jimmy Carter's uh, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor in the 1970s. And uh, in fact, your your article even opens with a quote by him. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Grand Chessboard. Uh, is that uh, am I to assume that you're essentially saying that that 
that publication essentially outlines in an honest way what the real motives are behind this uh, uh, current intervention? Yeah, exactly. In, in the 1990s, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, among many others, was very clear about the importance of Afghanistan and Central Asia to uh, what Brzezinski calls American primacy in global politics. Uh, so opening this, this region up. Um, another very important historical piece is in the 1990s, uh, both 1997 and 1999, acts were introduced into the U.S. Congress called the, the New Silk Road Act, uh, neither of which actually passed, but their discussion really uh, demonstrates the the geostrategic and geoeconomic importance of of this entire region, with Afghanistan at its at its center, as opening up a new Silk Road, which is is becoming a vast network of transportation, communications, and energy transmission uh, infrastructure. Hmm. Um. Now, you're going back. I mean, with this uh, understanding, this this Silk Road strategy, um, was that 1997? 1997 was the first time uh, the act was introduced into into Congress. Okay. And that's, of course, four years before 9-11. Exactly. Okay. So there's that understanding. What about Canadian, um, uh, since we're talking about the the Canada's role, uh, what uh, sorts of indications are there that Canadian companies and, and financiers were, you know, already gearing themselves towards some kind of uh, Afghanistan détente uh, in the years leading up to 9/11? Well, Canadian involvement in this is uh, is, is really integral. Um, you know, I, I haven't found that much leading up to 9/11, but. Since 2001, uh, the Canadian investment in the region uh, is is quite remarkable. Uh, most Canadians probably don't realize that uh, not the United States, but Canada and Japan are the two largest shareholders in the Asian Development Bank. And since uh, since 2001, the Asian Development Bank has been very aggressively moving on the uh, new Silk Road initiative. Uh, officially, the New Silk Road initiative wasn't announced until 2011 by Hillary Clinton. But beginning in 2001, uh, massive investment. Uh, it's at about $17 billion at this point, but but growing in, in the New Silk Road. And this is six transportation, communications, energy transmission corridors that are being developed throughout Central Asia, and all six corridors have to run through Afghanistan to be successful. So it, it requires the, the pacification of, of the Afghan population. It doesn't mean there has to be peace in Afghanistan. It just means that people have to be suppressed enough that they're not going to be blowing up railways or, or pipelines. Hmm. Um. Yeah, so we were talking principally about transportation routes and pipelines? Transportation routes, railways, highways, uh, oil and gas pipelines, 
uh, electrical transmission lines, which are very important, uh, particularly to Pakistan and India, getting hydroelectric power from Central Asia across Afghanistan to the Pakistan and India. Uh, fiber optic cables, you know, which have to travel overland from China to Europe, from India to Russia. Uh, oh, this infrastructure development is, uh, you know, the only thing I can compare it to is the kind of infrastructure development that happened in North American Europe in the late 19th century through, you know, to the present day of, you know, building superhighways, railways, the entire infrastructure of, of modern society. And Afghanistan for, you know, for 200 years now has, has sat in, in the midst of this as, as a barrier and is, is now being opened up. And it, and it is happening now. The construction is, is already underway. That's a, a very uh, important uh, point to be noting. Uh, I mean, we think about the development of Canada and the, the critical importance of developing the, the national railway system. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it sounds as if, like, you know, for the same reasons, essentially, where you have to uh, get that, you know, Integrating, you know, the, the business interests with these resource uh, depots, and exactly. uh, you know that that becomes an important point within Afghanistan. Of course, the difference here being that uh, it's foreign interests that are developing this uh, mm-hmm. this whole system. Well, and a, a major catalyst in Afghanistan itself is its its mineral and hydrocarbon wealth. Uh, there's just in, incredible wealth underneath the ground in Afghanistan, which, of course, no one was talking about during during the war. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, Afghanistan's wealth was quite understated. When I first started doing research in 2007, before I went to Afghanistan, I looked at American records, and they were saying that the geological wealth of Afghanistan was maybe 50 to $250 million dollars in value. And then when I got to Afghanistan and, and started to question Afghan geologists, and, and by the way, there's there's 10 universities in Afghanistan, despite the perception of ignorant Afghans. Uh, Afghan geologists started to telling me about the, the immense wealth that, that is there. And uh, of course, Canadian mining companies being at, at the forefront of, of world mining global mining. I mean, it's, uh, 60 to 75 percent of global mining comes through Toronto and Vancouver stock exchanges. Uh, this is, uh, Canada is, is at the forefront of developing mining in Afghanistan. Hmm. Um, and speaking of those mining interests, I mean, in order to operate, they, they'd need some uh, protection. Exactly. So are we seeing the military, the, the way that the military has been deployed? Uh, is it evident to you that these deployments are more geared towards protecting those mining interests um, and, and oil and gas interests as opposed to the, the, the general meme about, you know, uh, protecting women and, uh, you know, fighting for democracy and freedom and such? Well, we're, we're really part of a, of a global protection racket. And, you know, as, as much as the facade is about uh, liberating Afghan women and securing Canadians, what we're really doing is liberating 
the free flow of capital. We're liberating investors to, to be able to invest in, in Afghanistan and that surrounding region and, and securing their interests. We're not talking about, about securing most Afghans, although you know, an elite few Afghans will benefit from this. Most are, are being negatively affected. And in terms of, of securing Canadian interests, it's, it's really about securing investors' interests, not the average Canadian. Hmm. Um, is there possibly uh, one or, or two projects in particular that, 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 that really stand out uh, as, a, as a major? Because, I mean, it seems like there's an aggregate, but, I mean, if they're like uh, in terms of the uh, – whether it's a, the pipeline or a, a railway or uh, uh, you know some some other route that, that, that really maybe you might want to mention in terms of you know you know where the, the Canadian military and, and its partners are uh, concerned. Well, the the development of, of mining in Afghanistan is, is particularly interesting and uh, has a really integral Canadian element to it. Uh, the first major mine site to be auctioned. And it, it's important to note that prior to 2001, uh, mining in Afghanistan uh, and, and all natural resources were property of the state. Now, since 2001, this is another aspect of liberation. Those resources have been liberated for, for purchase by investors as private property. Uh, the, the first major asset to be auctioned off was uh, the Einik copper deposit, which is which is not far from Kabul, and a Canadian company, um, Hunter Dickinson, based in Vancouver, was convinced that uh, it was going to win the bid. They had bid about uh, probably about two billion dollars to buy this asset. So it's this is probably the largest copper deposit, certainly in. in in Asia and probably the largest in, in the world. Uh, they were beat out by a Chinese state enterprise, which uh, news reports said they, they actually bid $3.5 billion, but I, I looked up the, the stock market uh, tra- transactions, and it was actually $4.8 billion the Chinese company paid for the asset. Plus, they promised to uh, build a railway about 1,500 kilometers of railway from China through Tajikistan, through Afghanistan to the mine site, and on to Pakistan, as well as developing a coal mine nearby, which would power a electrical generation plant to generate power for for the mine site, as well as to be able to sell excess. Mm. Now, now, what was interesting in this project was. Uh, uh, a lot of American commentators, in particular, were uh, were commenting about the United States being in in place to militarily protect a Chinese investment, and uh, the paradox of this. And in, in fact, uh, certainly the Hunter Dickinson uh, principles were extremely angry with the Canadian government, and considering that. Uh, the Canadian government was, was basically controlling the Afghan government at this time through the, the SAT-A program, the strategic advisory team that was in Afghanistan, which were a number of Canadian military advisors advising Karzai and, and his cabinet. 
the Hunter Dick- Dickinson principals were, of course, very angry that Canadian soldiers were liberating Afghanistan, and here the first company in is, is a Chinese company. But I've, my perception is that uh, it was very strategic. The, the Chinese are taking huge risk building uh, a railway infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, and indeed the second big, big asset, which is Hajikak, a huge iron deposit, uh, went to a Canadian company, Kilo Gold Mines, uh, in in partnership with with an Indian conglomerate. And Kilo Gold Mines, very experienced working in war zones, they made their fortune in Democratic Republic of Congo, which over the recent decades has experienced the the most horrific war since the Second World War. Um, another country that that seems to be instrumental in the de- the development of this transportra- transportation uh, infrastructure is Iran, which seems kind of ironic as uh, it, Iran is portrayed as this rogue state and as uh, the, the greatest threat uh, in the region. Mm-hmm. It's, can you talk a little bit about that uh, element of it? Well, there, there's a, there's a real conflict here um, uh, since since writing the chapter in the book. I've, I've been doing more research on this, and the Asian Development Bank, and as I said, Canada's, with Japan is the largest shareholder in, in the ADB, is is shutting Iran out of investment in, in Afghanistan. The Asian Development Bank basically is giving funds to everybody other than the Iranian railway companies. Yet, ironically, to this point, Iran has been the most successful at, at building railways in, in Afghanistan. Uh, they've extended a line from the Iranian border to the western Afghan city of, of Herat, and uh, will eventually be joining that line up to the line that the Chinese are, are building in to the, the INEC site that I, that I mentioned earlier. So there's, there's definitely a, a conflict building between the West and Iran economically in in this situation. Hmm. So uh, I guess going back uh, to the uh, the title of your your piece, um, the Empire of Capital and the last inning of the Great Game. A- at this stage, I should uh, say the latest inning. Not, I don't think it'll be the last, but it, but oh, it is the most yeah, recent. Latest, yeah, okay. <laughs> But uh, as far as you could see, I mean, is this uh, game being won by uh, Western forces, uh, or is it? Uh, I mean, like the you know, if you see it as uh, the way it's portrayed as uh, you know, fight for freedom and such, uh, th- that would appear not to be working so well. But uh, are, are you know, in terms of the, the the business interests, is this working the way they uh, had intended? As far as you can tell, well, well, this is where there's there's a real contradiction. Because if if the goals of the war were to liberate Afghan women and liberate Afghans in general, it's been a horrific failure. If it was to uh, expand global security, whatever that means, it's it's certainly been a failure. We've we've seen an expansion of of, of fighting on a on a global scale. So, you know, in those terms, uh, it's it's been a been a real failure. But if we look 
from a business perspective and opening Afghanistan to business and liberating investors to invest in this region, it's actually been quite successful. Perhaps not as successful as as some might have hoped. I mean, there's there's still fighting going on in Afghanistan, and it's a difficult place to do business. But uh, often in those conflict zones is also where the greatest opportunities and the and the greatest uh, uh, possibilities of, of return on investment are also are. You know, as, as Naomi Klein talked about disaster capitalism, this is disaster capitalism at, at its at its peak. Hmm. Well, okay. I <clears throat> I guess we'll uh, end it there. But um, I want to thank you very much for for sharing that analysis with us. Well, well, thanks for calling, Mike. Uh, Michael Skinner is an independent researcher and graduate fellow at the York Center for International and Security Studies, and uh, he has uh, pu- contributed an article to the anthology Empire's Ally, Canada and the War in Afghanistan, uh, which is available now. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. John Ryan is a retired professor of geography and senior scholar from the University of Winnipeg. His perspective on the Afghanistan situation is informed by a visit he paid to Kabul in the late 1970s, a few months after progressive reforms were introduced to the country. Dr. Ryan's analysis has been published on the web, including in on the Global Research website. So I'd like to um, introduce uh, John Ryan uh, to uh, the program. Thank you for uh, joining us, John. I'm happy to be here, Michael. Okay, um, could I uh, get you, first of all, to just recount uh, what it was that brought you to Afghanistan in the first place? All right, I went on a sabbatical leave in 1978 uh, to do documentary accounts, case studies of farming in in Asia. And I spent uh, over eight months uh, starting in Japan and wound up in Afghanistan. I did 70 case studies, four of them being in the last four were in Afghanistan. And I wound up in Afghanistan in November of 1978. Okay. Now, uh, there had been uh, some sort of a a revolt there uh, earlier in the year, in April of 1978. That's correct. Actually, I heard about it just before I I left for Asia in in Canada in May, and I didn't hear a thing about it afterwards until I uh, crossed into, I traveled through the Khyber Pass, by bus, which is what I always wanted to do, and got to Kabul. And as I um, had always done everywhere, I simply got a cab, and I asked to go to the Faculty of Agriculture, and I wanted to speak to the dean. So I I got there, and um, of course, as a foreign professor, it doesn't matter who's in the office, you come in, you, you get to see the dean right away. So in any event, I came in, and I introduced myself, and I said, I understand you've had a revolution here, and I may not be able to do research. The chap leans back from his desk in a splendid British uh, uh, accent said, Oh, revolution, half a day, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't know. Well, let's go have tea, 
and you tell us all about your travels, and we will discuss the situation in Afghanistan. So that's how I wound up there. And later, we had tea, and the other professors were there, and they quickly briefed me on what the situation was in, in Afghanistan. They pointed out that uh, Afghanistan had largely been a feudal society in which most people were farmers, but the land was held largely by landlords. Three-quarters of the land was held by landlords, and they composed only 3% of the population. And um, this is, and, and they uh, charged atrocious rental rates up to 24%, so that's how they acquired the land. And the king was overthrown in 1973, actually replaced by his cousin, but conditions even got worse. And in uh, April of 1978, uh, they arrested and, and tortured and killed a, a, a leader of, um, who uh, wanted to establish trade unions in Afghanistan. Uh, when, uh, about 15,000 15, people came to the funeral. The government panicked about this, and then they arrested all the Marxist and labor people uh, in the country, including uh, a man called Mohammed Taraki, who was a professor of journalism. As the dean said, he, his office was six doors down the hall here. Hmm. And um, when the people found this out, it was on <clears throat> April 28, 1978, that about 20,000 of them gathered in front of the presidential palace. And uh, as they gathered there for a major demonstration, <clears throat> the police came around and looked as if they were going to attack the, the crowd. And just at that point, it, by the way, the uh, professor, the dean, said, I was there with the crowd watching this. And he said, an, an, an army regiment came along with a tank rolling up the street. Well, people get out of the way for the tank. So the tank rolls into the square. And initially, the, the police thought this was a reinforcements for them. On the contrary, the, the soldiers fired a volley of shots over the heads of the police and told them to disperse because they were there to get the overthrow, the, the resignation of the government. <clears throat> it was obvious the people had lost confidence in the, in the government. And then, as the professor said, then I witnessed the revolution full half a day. So the presidential guard fired on the soldiers, the soldiers fired back, the tank fired one shot <coughs> into the palace, and then he says he got into the palace, and he said the, the president, as he put it, the silly bugger, he said he walks out of his office with a rifle in his hand. He gets shot and killed. And he said the, the military then, instead of <coughs> they didn't want to form the government themselves, they then released all the labor and Marxist leaders including Taraki, they brought him there, and he said, we want you to form the government. You are the only ones who have a, 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 an idea of what should be done economically and socially, and we will support you. So they helped Taraki on top of the tank, and Taraki stands on the tank and says, okay, I will form the government. And that's how the Marxist government came into office and on, at the end of April 1978. This was a total surprise to the CIA. They never blamed the Soviets for it. In fact, this was a major supply a surprise for the Soviets. They never, it, you know, this never, they never ever thought such a thing would happen. And then the dean says, what they then did, he says, they went about reforms. The first thing they did is gave women equal rights. There was complete separation of church and state. Emphasis was placed on, on health care and education. 
But the major issue was land reform. But he said there was a major problem here in that the bulk of the landlords were actually Muslim mullahs. There were 250,000 of them, a quarter million mullahs who owned land. And here the government wanted to redistribute land. And so he said what happened is that these mullahs in the mosques were telling the people, if you get land from the government, you will go to hell. Only Allah can give you land. And so he said, given that, so the government was quite cautious. So they held meetings and so forth throughout the country to alert the people that indeed, you know, he said essentially what they wanted to do was redistribute the land so that even the landlords, so they would all get an equal share of the land. If the land was poor, you'd get more land. If the land was good, you'd get less land. And even the, even the landlords are going to get the same amount of land. Well, what happened with this is the mullahs and the landlords then uh, fled left Afghanistan to Pakistan, and they wanted to overthrow this regime. And not only they wanted to oppose the land reform, but all social uh, reforms. Girls were to go to school, for instance. They did away with child marriages and, and all these outrageous dowries. They wanted to reinstate all of that. Well, guess what? The Americans supported them. And it was the CIA who supported, supported the mullahs. Them. Yes, supported the mullahs. That was the beginning of the Taliban. That was the beginning of the so-called um, uh, terrorists. The CIA initiated and launched the entire thing. And it was Big New Brzezinski in July of 1979 convinced Jimmy Carter that the CIA should, should get actively involved. Now, there's one more character in this, and that's a guy called Hafizullah Amin. He, uh, he was an Afghan guy who was uh, studying at Stanford University, and he failed his PhD. And um, this has happened repeatedly, and people fail their PhDs in the USA. They get recruited by the CIA almost immediately. And I've, this happened even at McGill when I, when I was there, how they tried to recruit a chap who had failed his PhD. Anyway, they recruited Hafizullah Amin, and he came back to Afghanistan, pretended he was a hardcore Marxist, but he was actually a CIA agent. He worked himself up cleverly. To became, he became defense minister, and then he became prime minister. And he then, in 19, um, September of 79, before these reforms could be enacted, he had uh, uh, Mohammed Taraki killed, actually smothered by a pillow, and he then took over. He then, just as a CIA agent would, would do, he enacted draconian uh, laws against the, the, the um, Muslims and the clergy to further alienate them. And he was having meetings with the American uh, attaché, and he was having meetings with the, with the Mujahideen. What he wanted to do was to uh, eventually form an, uh, a fundamentalist Islamist uh, state with him as president and Hekmatyar, who was the leader of the, of the Mujahideen, to be the, the prime minister. Hmm. Well, all this was launched. He jailed thousands of people, killed army people, many of them fled. But he was killed in December, the end of December 1979. Soviet troops arrived on the scene. Uh, um, Amin was killed, and they got they got a guy called uh, 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 Karmal, who came in, who was in, in, um, 
he was in, uh, as a, a refugee in, um, in Czechoslovakia. He came in and then headed the government. So the Soviets sent in troops with Karmal at the end of 1979, the beginning of 1980. Stupidly, incredibly, and this then launched the 10-year war. Well, what were the when you were there in, in yeah. the late in the seventies? Yeah. I mean, what what did you witness? I mean, you didn't see women with in the burkas. Oh, that and was the, most uh, interesting, Michael. In fact, I I took a picture at a bus stop. I had a, a a woman in a burka, you know, the kind they all now wear. But right beside her was a woman in a business suit with a briefcase, and there was a man in a in a suit, a business suit, another guy in a casual uh, outfit, and another man with a, a turban on his head and a traditional Afghan. This was that kind of society. I, I wandered around. Um, there were no hardly any police or soldiers on 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 the scene, and everything was peaceful, and it was all overthrown. Mm-hmm. So this, the the um, the, so the the Americans destroyed this. Government that wish everyone would have wanted in 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 power now, and essentially what they did, the mujahideen. I just wanted to finish this up. The Afghans weren't fanatics, so they got over thirty-five thousand fanatic Muslims from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia, from Algeria, to come in, including Osama bin Laden, and these are the people who form the core of the mujahideen. In the meantime, in Pakistan, they were training young kids in madrasa schools to be fanatics. These became the core of the Taliban. So, with American... The, the Soviets then left in, in 1988. And it's thought that when they left, uh, because of Gorbachev, uh, when they left that the, uh, this government collapsed, it didn't. They outlasted the Soviet Union itself without a single soldier on the scene. These people fought off the Mujahideen because they realized, especially the women, they realized what was going to happen to them. The Soviets pulled out, didn't give them any arms. The Americans continued to arm them. And eventually, the, um, uh, this was now Najibullah in, in charge of the Marxist government. He was overthrown in '92. I mean, uh, to give, oh, yes. Reagan said, these are the equivalent of the founding fathers of America. And these people were terrorists of the, of the first kind, where they, they, when they captured Soviet soldiers, they skinned them alive. That's the kind of things that they did. And, um, and, and when they caught Najibullah, they castrated him and hung him up on a lamppost. So these are the kinds of people that you had. But what yeah, happened after that is that the, the Mujahideen fought against one another. They killed some 50,000 people in Kabul. And finally, the Taliban came in and kicked them the hell out <laughs> in 1996. So the Mujahideen then wound up in the 10% of the territory in the northern part of the country. The Taliban took over. And at first, the people sort of supported them because they brought in law and order. Oh, yes, while the Mujahideen were there, they looted and raped people on a constant basis. The Taliban didn't do that. But the Taliban instead instituted these draconian laws. Women were all fired from their positions. They were kept in their homes. You couldn't even see a doctor unless you had a, a, a family person present. And so, but meantime, Clinton wasn't at all concerned about this. And why? 
Because the Americans all along had wanted a pipeline going through Afghanistan. So you're looking back from uh, 1978 to today, yep. you're, uh, you've seen a, a substantial decline in the uh, – we have seen a, a substantial decline in the in, uh, quality in of life, the quality of life of, uh, oh, yeah. of the people. And in actual fact, if they had simply left the Taraki government alone, there would have been no army of Mujahideen. There would have been no Soviet intervention, there would have been no Osama bin Laden, and there would have been no 9-11. Mm-hmm. That's the situation. And so they've come into Afghanistan, and now the entire country is opposed to the, to the occupation. Uh, so, you know, the British were thrown out, the Russians were thrown out, and eventually the Americans will be thrown out. But, and Canada, to get, in, to get involved in this, was just absolutely plain stupidity. They never understood the background to any of this. And, and simply to, because they hadn't gone to, to fight on in Iraq to appease the Americans, said, okay, we'll go to Afghanistan for you. But it was simply to be in Kabul for a period of time. It was Harper who decided to put them into the most dangerous places in Kandahar. And this was plain and utter stupidity without any concept of the history of this area or the people. And the thing is continuing. It's just one tragedy after another on the the Afghan people. And Canada's contributing to it. John Ryan, I want to thank you for uh, sharing those uh, unique perspectives with us on on our uh, program. You're very welcome, Michael. And uh, I've been speaking with John Ryan, a retired professor of geography and senior scholar from the University of Winnipeg. Opinion polls in Canada have registered dissatisfaction and discontent with Canada's military mission in Afghanistan, and yet anti-war sentiment does not seem to have translated into a very robust anti-war movement. As global research has asserted over the years, the anti-war movement in Canada appears to be in disarray with no obvious means of meaningfully confronting the current and ongoing military deployments and expenditures. Joining us now to discuss the barriers facing the movement in Canada and how they may be overcome is Derek O'Keefe. He is the editor of Rabble.ca. He is a writer and social justice activist based in Vancouver, B.C. He's the author of the book Michael Ignatieff, The Lesser Evil, and co-author with Malale Joya of her memoir, Woman Among Warlords. He, too, contributed to the anthology Empire's Ally, Canada and the War in Afghanistan. So thank you very much for joining us, Derek. Um, could you maybe just you know, offer a brief explanation, if you could, you know, if the majority of Canadians do oppose the Afghan military mission, why does it seem that year after year the, uh, the, that popular will is not being reflected in our uh, actual foreign policy? Um, well, thank you for having me on, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenging topic to uh, to get our heads around, but uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that this collection, Empire's Ally, is out. Uh, this book really um, takes a look in-depth more than any other collection that I've seen at the, the Canada's record the last 11, 12 years in Afghanistan. I think first and foremost, the, the challenge is that um, the government line or the government story 
that the war in Afghanistan is winding down or has already wound down is is widely accepted. They've been very successful um, even before they withdrew the combat um, the combat troops from Kandahar. Um, you know, each year they would say that it was the last year uh, in Afghanistan and that they were on their way out. And then in 2011, they said that they withdrew Canadian troops, even though they've actually left a thousand Canadian forces personnel um, in the country in various parts of Afghanistan. And as we know now, um, if we're paying attention to what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan, we know that no part of the country uh, is safe. Uh, there was just recently, just the other day, there was an attack on the presidential palace in Kabul. The week before that, there was an attack on the Air Force and actually the main ISAF uh, foreign forces base uh, at the airport in Kabul was attacked as well. And th this is where Canadian troops are going to be until the end of 2014, at least. Um, but so I guess the first and biggest challenge for the anti-war movement is just getting that basic information to Canadians. Uh, explaining the fact that Canadian troops are still there, we're still part of a very unpopular and very counterproductive military occupation. That's the biggest challenge. I, I think the other, the, several other factors worth mentioning are just generally the decline of progressive activism across the country, and um, I would say a general weakness or weariness of, of progressive forces. Of, of course, trade unions and other organizations are feeling... Um, you know, that they have to defend themselves against other kinds of attacks from the Harper government. Uh, you know, there may be a pressure to spend less time on foreign policy and anti-war activism when there's so many other fronts that uh, labor and other, other groups feel they're being attacked on. So that all of that's a challenge for the anti-war movement. And uh, to, briefly to explain what I think we have to do, I think we have to be more creative um, in our tactics and in, in some of our strategies, um, you know, to, to make the anti-war movement uh, meaningful again to more people in Canada. Hmm. I know that you mentioned in your article uh, the, the need to align for the anti-war movement to align with other struggles. Is it is it possible for you to maybe elaborate on that a little? Sure. Um, well, the big one that I talk about in the chapter is the climate justice movement. And I think there's a responsibility on, on both ends of this. I think environmental and climate activists have to uh, take stands against war and against the military-industrial complex. And I think the anti-war movement um, needs to really look at teaming up with, with climate justice mobilizations, partly because that's where a lot of young people are, are getting active and involved in politics for the first time these days. Um, you know, the whole there's a growing awareness, especially among younger generations, that the climate emergency is, is an urgent global matter that we have to they have to that we have to deal with but the idea that it could you could somehow um solve the climate crisis without ending war and um and imperialism is just a complete fallacy it's complete um uh you know there's just no way that we're going to be because climate change requires a whole new level of international cooperation uh, and diplomacy and peaceful resolutions of, of issues of resource scarcity. And what we have um, al alongside all of these wars in the Middle East is a pursuit of energy resources and, and other you know mining resources. And as long as there's a scramble for the Middle Eastern resources, a scramble for Africa and violent competition for resources, there's just no possible way that the world will get a handle on, on the climate uh, climate change crisis. So that's the, 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 the two movements that I think most urgently have to unite. And, um, you know, going back, I mean, going back 40 years, this was an idea that gained some currency and, and kind of that those links have been lost over the years. It, the one um, 
the biggest probably NGO in the world uh, on the environmental side, Greenpeace, was originally started uh, specifically to bring together peace and environmental concerns. That's why uh, the name Greenpeace was given. But the peace side of that has been dropped and sort of lost. Uh, and I think we have to bring the green movement and the peace movement back together uh, back together again if we're going to have uh, any hope for a decent future. Speaking of NGOs, uh, do you see any instances where uh, uh, some of the NGOs that are working within Afghanistan might be at counter-purposes with the, the anti-war movement? Uh, yeah, yes, quite clearly. Um, you know, there's a lot of smaller NGOs doing good work in Afghanistan, Afghan NGOs, that uh, are often formed to, to get around the problem of a very, very corrupt government women's groups in Afghanistan uh, that do a lot of good work. But on the other hand, there's a lot of, certainly a number of Canadian NGOs that uh, are quite explicitly doing the bidding of the Canadian government and Canadian foreign policy, or explicitly have policies where they will not criticize the Canadian government and they will not criticize the NATO occupation. So to me, this sort of negates any positive work they they might be doing um, uh, just to give an example, the um, Women for Women in Afghanistan has been very closely aligned with the Canadian government's role in the war there. Um, they've refused to issue any statements criticizing um, bombings, including bombings that have killed women and children. Uh, you know, and they're strictly sort of playing a PR role um, for the governments that are trying to say the war in Afghanistan is about, uh, is about women's rights. But, uh, you know, if you look at the, the record of the Canadian government, it just completely flies in the face of the, of the women's rights justification for the war. Um, when it comes to actual cases of, of women's rights in Afghanistan, the Canadian government has been silent, uh, such as when the, the Karzai government allied with a number of fundamentalist warlords to, uh, to legalize marital rape um, and, and basically to take away a whole host of women's rights. The Canadian government made no meaningful protests when that happened. Um, you mentioned I worked on the book with Malalai Joya, an, an Afghan parliamentarian, young woman. When she was expelled from parliament in Afghanistan, the Canadian government said nothing. And actually, they've said nothing to this day, even when there were attempts on her life. The, the Canadian government at no point made supporting statements for this Afghan uh, woman. So, yeah, it, there are definitely NGOs that play a role. And, and I mean, the, the main role they play is to so confusion or um, I think to misrepresent the reasons that Canada is in Afghanistan to the Canadian public. So that's something we have to, to educate people about as well. Well, we probably have the most uh, militaristic uh, government uh, that, that we've ever had in, in our history right now. And uh, I, I'm wondering if, if there are things that Canadians in particular should be doing if they're to uh, mobilize a, a truly effective uh, anti-war movement. I mean, where, like, if there may be two or three things, where where do we need to most mobilize uh, and focus our energies at this time? I think there's a few things, and um, we talked about the challenge of organizing about the war in Afghanistan. Um, so I think we have to keep trying to educate people, as I said, but we do also have to find the uh, key campaigns related to the current harbor government which is unpopular for a whole host of reasons, um, and really press, press, press ahead against the militarism of the Harper government. So the top of mind is the, is the fighter jets issue. I think that's an issue that's sort of gone mainstream in terms of the way that the Harper government lied about the cost of the fighter jets. 
And, uh, you know, the answer we're moving, we didn't really take full advantage of that. We didn't step in, I think, with a big enough campaign um, specifically to talk about all the other things they should be spending money on um, rather than the fighter jets. Um, so I think that's an issue that the public is already aware of, and we really need to, to, um, to strike on that. Uh, the, the government has kind of pretended that the project is dead now, but um, I think they're kind of letting it lay low and, you know, pretending to review the cost. But ultimately, they would they would still like to purchase these F-35s, and if not the F-35s, some other uh, multi-billion-dollar killing machine. So we have to keep the heat up on that issue, um, I think, for sure. Uh, the other one is just the different ways that uh, the Harper government is, is militarizing Canadian culture. Um, Harper, just the other day, was wearing a military jacket when he toured the flooding scenes in uh, uh, just outside of Calgary. And this is just sort of one little... Um, instance uh, of the government and the top government cabinet ministers always associating themselves with the military, always inserting the military into areas of Canadian life that in the past were um, were civilian areas of life. So uh, Peter McKay shows up to hand out the Grey Cup with a, with a Canadian Forces tank and uh, Canadian Forces appear at uh, you know, every summer festival in the major cities in Canada. So one thing we've been doing in Vancouver with the Anti-War Coalition is, is going out um, to the uh, the big festival here, the PNE, where the military sets up a huge uh, display and just challenging their presence uh, in, a, in a creative way, you know, handing out information about the wars Canada's involved in, um, uh, just encouraging encouraging a discussion. You know, we're not trying to get the military banned from attending these festivals because that that wouldn't uh, be a winning strategy anyway we're just trying to get out there and, and use it as an opportunity to uh to have a discussion with canadians so there's those those two and then the third thing i would say is just um because i didn't get to mention this before i think the anti-war movement needs to return to the tradition of civil disobedience and uh really look seriously at different tactics that haven't been used in in many decades, um, at least by the anti-war movement, um, the climate justice movement has started to use uh, direct action and, and nonviolent civil disobedience, and I think it's time the uh, the anti-war movement got our heads around that because you can have a, a much bigger impact. That's a very important talk, topic of conversation. Uh, Derek O'Keefe, thank you very much for sharing those insights with us. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, thank you for bringing some attention to this uh, this new book on Canadian foreign policy. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Derek O'Keefe is an editor with Rabble.ca, and uh, he's also a writer and social justice activist based in Vancouver, B.C., and a contributor to the anthology Empire's Ally, the Canada and the War in Afghanistan. That concludes our program. For more on this topic, the anthology Empire's Ally, Canada and the War in Afghanistan is in bookstores now. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.